And welcome once again to another edition of A Plain Answer here at Redeemer Broadcasting. I'm Dan Elmendorf. On the phone line with us today is Dr. Carl Truman, and he serves as Professor of Biblical and Religious Studies at Grove City College. And prior to this, he was Professor of Historical Theology and Church History at Westminster Theological Seminary. He's also a pastor. Uh, So, Dr. Truman, it's an honor to have you on with us today. It's great to be back, Dan. This is um, more of a fireside chat, if you will, uh, with you and us. And um, I thought maybe we'd start by uh, talking about the Church and what is the Church. And and we know that there's an invisible aspect to it as well as a visible aspect. And maybe we could start there. Yeah, well, theologians typically make a distinction when they're talking about the Church between the invisible and the visible Church. The invisible Church is is all of those who are saving you united to the Lord Jesus Christ. The reason we call it the invisible Church is that that no man or woman has the, such great insight into the heart of another that we could say with absolute 100% certainty that person is a member of, of, of the real church really united to christ uh, the visible church is is a term that theologians use for we might say the outward organization of the church here on earth the the groups that gather together on a sunday for worship in presbyterianism we regard uh, the visible church as as adult believers and their covenant children there is an outward manifestation there uh, the visible church is governed by elders and served by deacons and membership of the visible church is is based upon uh, for adults uh, at least what we call a credible profession of faith i'm a pastor when an adult comes to me and asks if he can join cornerstone presbyterian church the elders will interview that person and decide whether uh, their knowledge and the way they live their lives gives us good grounds for believing that that person is actually uh, a Christian believer, and then we will admit them uh, into membership of the of the visible church. But we ultimately, as elders, we do not have the responsibility or make the claim of having immediate access to the Lamb's Book of Life and being able <laughs> to tell who is whose name is in it and who's not. We simply make what you might call a, a ministerial or a provisional judgment on on whether the person declares with their mouth uh, that Jesus is Lord and lives as if he's risen from the dead. Yeah. You know, some time ago, um, us being in the radio ministry, there was this uh, gentleman who basically denied the visible church. He was um, from the West Coast and uh, caused a lot of problems. Um, Have you seen people do that before? Yes, I mean, that happens. uh, I think there are two ways that typically happens. We might say a formal way and an informal way. I mean, I assume you're thinking of Harold Camping when you you, uh, you, you mentioned this particular gentleman. Right. Uh, and, and sometimes there is this formal denial uh, that the church has an outward organization. I think the real problem with that is it flies in the face of biblical teaching. Uh, very clearly, the church in the New Testament gathers together for worship. We're urged not to stop meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing. Paul, as he's uh, coming towards the end of his ministry, writes his letters to Timothy and Titus and lays out very, very clearly uh, that the church is to have a a kind of structure, an institutional structure governed by elders. So the the big problem you have if you formally deny the importance of the visible church is you're flying in the face of biblical teaching, and then I think practically 
you're denying people the context in which they can grow as believers. Uh, the visible church isn't there so that particular individuals can throw their weight around and lord it over others. It's there to provide a context in which individual Christians can grow as part of the, the corporate whole. More common, I think, perhaps, is, is the informal denial of the visible church. And that's where people have an attitude to going to church on Sunday that's, that's kind of consumerist in its orientation. They go when they want, perhaps, or you know, if the church isn't quite meeting the needs that they feel they have, they, they move very casually to another church. They never seem to exhibit any, any deep-rooted commitment uh, to a congregation. And I think that informal denial of the importance of the visible church is perhaps more widespread and in some ways more insidious because you know, it's a temptation for all of us in a world where there are so many churches we could go to, to end up as rather rootless and, and taste-driven in how we choose the, uh, the church which we attend and, and, and to what extent we serve there. Yeah, sometimes um, church attendance... Uh um, you know, you, you get up in, on a Sunday morning. Now, you, you have to be there. You're the pastor, but... <laughs> yeah, I get paid to be there. So. <laughs> um, you know, for, for the attendees, uh, for, the, for the church members, um, some mornings you're just so tired. You say, oh, it'd be so easy not to go to church. And then you say, no, I, I have to go to church because it's good for me. It's where I belong. I, I, I need to be with God's people. I need to be under the hearing of the Word of God preached and partake of the sacrament. Um, but, um, there's this weakness, uh, you know, early in the morning, I felt it before myself. Uh, what about, what about that? Is that, is that normal? Oh, I think so. I mean, we, we need to remember that the, uh, the trick our sinful souls, the, 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 the thing our sinful souls want to do more than anything else is keep us away from the means of grace, keep us away from the proclamation of God's word. And, and we will use any excuse or succumb to any temptation uh, to do that, unless we, we guard our lives and our doctrine very carefully. So, yeah, that's very, very common. I think that this is one of the reasons why it's important for parents to instill the discipline of regular church going into their children, so that going to church on Sunday becomes as natural as getting up and going out to work on Monday. Yeah. Uh, that it never crosses, you know, it never crosses my mind these days not to go to church on a Sunday, even when I'm not preaching. Uh, uh, I would, I would just, it's, it's just drummed into my, almost into my genetics now that that's what I do on a Sunday. And I think disciplined habit of that is very, very mm -hmm. important for Christians. And it's mm. important to instill that early on in life. Um, I remember being very struck. Uh, it's, it, it's perhaps advice that comes from an, an odd quarter, considering I'm a Protestant. But I remember hearing the Roman Catholic Archbishop of Philadelphia being quizzed on why young people were leaving the Catholic Church. And his comment was, young people are leaving the Catholic Church because people of my generation, their parents, never taught them that attending was important in the first place. Yeah. He said, you know, if you get up on a Sunday and you go to a ball game rather than taking your kids to the church, you're teaching your kids that ball games are more important than church. And I was very, I was very convicted and struck by that. I thought that is an interesting comment. And there's a huge responsibility on parents not to even inadvertently send the wrong signals about church to their children. Yeah. Well, those days, and they don't always occur, but when they do occur where I say, oh, no, do I have to go? And then at the other end, when church is all done, I say, thank God 
I was there. I am refreshed in my spirit. The Holy Spirit of God used his word preached to minister to my heart, and that is what I needed the most. And uh, thank God that he gave me the strength to get to where I needed to be. I think that's important. And one of the things that I'm always struck by is when people have spiritual difficulties, one of the first things they do is sort of withdraw from church. Yes. And if we draw an analogy with the medical medical world, and we say, you know, if you're sick, the last thing you want to do is withdraw yourself from medical care. Right. You know, because it's the medical care that's going to help you get better. If you're spiritually sick, the last thing you want to do is withdraw yourself from the place where you're going to get spiritual aid, i.e. the church. Yeah, that, that, that's right. And some folks might be inclined to think, well, I really sinned this week. I, I know I fell flat on my face. And I don't feel that I'm up to being around God's people because they're so holy. Yeah, I mean, that's a, that, that's a not uncommon feeling. I, again, I think one has to, to realize that the truth is often counterintuitive. Often our feelings are no safe guide to what's actually true. And if you sin badly this week, the place you really need to be <laughs> is, is in church. You need to be hearing uh, God's word preached and applied to your soul. Yeah. So... Uh, you know, I think I think I read it in a, I read this phrase in a book a few years ago that the writer said, you know, that voice inside your head isn't God, it's you, <laughs> and I think that's absolutely true. Yep. It's not God telling you you're uh, you're too unholy to go to church. It's you, uh, and you need to ignore your advice at that point and get there anyway. Yeah, yeah. Now. Um there's there's a lot of traditions, and I realize that we have a, a wide range of folks tuned into this program, and so we want to be very careful to, uh, to acknowledge that. But um, people come to faith, believing upon the Lord Jesus Christ from various walks of life and various experiences. Um, there's some who um, maybe have uh, had an exposure to the Christian claims through like a Billy Graham crusade and and came to faith through that, while there's others who grew up in a more, can I say, conventional Christian home, and uh, some of them can't even point to a time where there was a crisis moment, but they know beyond a shadow of a doubt that they're God's child. Can you you speak to that that phenomenon, let me call it? Well, I think you've certainly very accurately described uh, the range of experiences that one finds in, in, in any church, typically. Uh, I imagine if you go to my congregation and I were to ask half a dozen people how they'd come to faith, some would describe a crisis experience, some would describe a gradual process, and there are some who would say they, they can't remember because for as long yeah. as, they, as long as they have a memory, they know that they've loved Jesus and trusted him as their savior. And I think we need to... We need to realize that the Lord works in, in many, many different ways. We shouldn't tie him down to one particular pattern or paradigm. We certainly shouldn't uh, uh, doubt the integrity of somebody's faith simply because they didn't have the same experience that we had, say, some years ago. I think you judge the integrity of somebody's faith by what they say and how they act and live here and now in the present. Um, but I would, you know, it, it, certainly in Protestantism, the crisis experience mode of conversion has, has gripped the imagination. I think Paul is an 
obvious example of that. He's sort of the founder of the feast, I suppose, on that <laughs> front. And then as it works out through Protestant literature, you have you know, the conversion of St. Augustine, as he describes it in his Confessions, that really then goes on to serve as a, a major paradigm. And it's picked up by, by Luther in his so-called um, autobiographical fragment of 1545, though it's arguable he's not actually describing his conversion there. He's describing an exegetical breakthrough. But a lot of later Protestant literature picked Luther up, his description of this crisis experience as describing a conversion. John Bunyan, Grace Abounding, um, and then we, we come on down to John Wesley, George Whitfield, the Methodist revivals. The crisis experience looms very, very large in the Protestant imagination. And I think it serves a good purpose because it, it does underline the fact that there is a need for the individual to believe. It does accent the need for individuals to, to take ownership of the Christian faith for themselves. On the other hand, there are strands of the Christian faith, and even within Protestantism, in the Presbyterian tradition, where the emphasis is on catechizing children and bringing them up in, in the faith, almost on the assumption that they're Christians. And I think that the strengths of that are that it, it doesn't root God's grace in the extraordinary and the spectacular. It, 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 gives, uh, it does justice to the ordinary way in which God typically works, not only to bring people to faith, but also to maintain them to faith. In faith, the danger of that model, of course, is that it can leave us assuming that our children have have, have owned the faith for themselves when perhaps they haven't. So, I, I think both patterns uh, highlight important aspects of the truth, and both patterns also have weaknesses that we need to be aware of. And bottom line is the Lord calls people in a variety of different ways and you know, when I'm interviewing people for membership at Cornerstone I'll, I'll always say to them, you know, how did you come to be a Christian? Mm -hmm. And I'm not looking for them to describe necessarily a dramatic crisis experience or to tell me about the wonders of being catechized as a child. I want to hear from them how they came to faith and I want to make a judgment here and now on whether what they say with their mouth and how they live their lives match up as providing a a credible ground for believing that they are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. Yeah. What about that person uh, that uh, is listening today who uh, says, oh boy, here they go again, talking about coming to faith, but um, I don't have any faith, I don't have any interest in God, I just happened to tune past this broadcast. Any, any word for, for that person? <laughs> well, again, it's hard to give general advice to, to the person who just doesn't believe because you know, everybody who doesn't believe probably rejects the Christian faith in their own particularly unique way. Sure. Uh, but I would say that uh, the claims of the Bible are dramatic and powerful. Uh, one should not be indifferent to them. Uh, ultimately, the question of whether Jesus Christ is the Son of God and died and rose again from the dead is of fundamental importance. And to the casual atheist, I suppose, I would say this. Don't be casual about your atheism. Make sure you understand what you're rejecting and reject it with passion because this is serious stuff. Uh, and it's, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ poses a very fundamental challenge to your autonomy and to your beliefs about yourself. And you need to think very seriously about that. Unbelief should not be a casual thing in the slightest. Yeah, one thing we all share in common is that um, 
we we are flesh and blood, and uh, we have an end to our existence, and and most likely, uh, the majority of us will uh, will die, and and we'll go through some suffering at the end potentially, and it's and it's kind of a grim picture, um, and yet that's what we all share in common. Yeah, uh, there is coming a day when you will rise from your bed for the very last time. Uh, you will die. Are you fully confident that you will not then go to meet your maker and face judgment? That's a huge question you have yeah. to ask yourself. Yeah. Now, uh, explain to our listeners and to us, or recount uh, the basis of, of our salvation. It, it's not our good works, right? No, not at all. Uh, Martin Luther has a, a wonderful uh, phrase he uses fairly early on in his reforming career when he says, the love of God does not find, but creates that which is lovely to it. And what he's pointing to there is the fact that the human beings, in and of ourselves, we are not lovely. We are not desirable. We are in rebellion against God. We do things that even we don't approve of. I don't think there's an atheist out there who looks into his or her own heart who would say, well, everything I've done, I think, has, has been good and I approve of and I'm willing to stand by. We all know we don't measure up, even to our own fairly mediocre standards let alone the standards of a holy and righteous God. And the Gospel tells us that you know, if we try to stand before God on our own strength, we're, we're going to abysmally fail. But the good news is that God is a God of creative love. He sends His Son uh, to die on our behalf, to take our rebellion on His shoulders, to take the punishment that we deserve from God on His own shoulders. And He does this not because we are friends, crying out for help. But the Bible is very specific. He does this while we were still enemies mm -hmm. of God. Uh, God's love is creative. He's not looking down from heaven and saying, well, some lovely people down there, I think I'll go and help them out. He's looking down from heaven and he sees nothing lovely. And he decides, well, I will, I will go down in the person of my son and die and make a lovely people for myself. It's a beautiful account um, it, it, it boggles the imagination even of what he has done. Um, this God that we serve, he's, um, he's triune. Can you somehow try to describe that a little bit for us today? Uh, well, not really, no. <laughs> right. the, the whole point of, of the doctrine of the Trinity is really that it guards the mystery of God. We know that the Bible clearly teaches us that God is one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one, is the great declaration that uh, is made to the people of Israel in the Old Testament. But we also know from the New Testament that, uh, that God exists in three persons. Uh, there's clearly, uh, we, might, we might describe as a dialogical relationship going on between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And how do we tie together the three and the one? Well, the answer is we can't do it in an absolute way with our finite human minds. But what we can say is clearly... God exists as Father, He also exists as Son, and He also exists as Holy Spirit. And theologians say, we, we describe the relations, we say that, that the, the, Spirit, uh, the, the Father gener eternally generates the Son, the Son is eternally generated by the Father, and the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. Yeah. Beyond that, we can't really say very much. Uh, it's fascinating studying the rise of Trinitarian doctrine, because what becomes clear with the Trinitarian discussions of the early churches, the Trinity is the doctrine that's left after all of the other explanations have failed to give an adequate account of mm. New Testament teaching. Mm. So there's a sense in which 
We know God is three and God, we know God is one. We don't know a whole lot more than that in terms of the internal life of God himself. Now, our readers may turn around and say, listeners may turn around and say, well, you know, what practical difference does that make? It makes, you know, there, there are numerous things that one could say about that, but one of the important things about thinking of God as three is this. It means that love is eternal. When you think of love, love only exists in an interpersonal relationship. One person cannot love themselves in any truly meaningful way. Love only exists when there are persons in relationship to each other. So God, who is eternally three, can also be eternally love, because those three persons can relate to each other in terms of, of love. So that's one example. So Islam, for example, has no real understanding of, of, of love, of, of God as loving in an eternal sense, because God is, is absolutely one in Islam, and therefore prior to the creation, prior to there being something with which God can be in relation, there can be no meaningful love. Mm-hmm. Christianity, that's not the case. God has always existed in relation, in loving relation. As you talk about this, it sounds like you're dipping into some of the great creeds of the Church, <laughs> and I know, oh, yeah. I, I know that you've you've written a book uh, about the the beauty and even the necessity of, of, of creedal statements in the church. In the last two or three minutes uh, remaining, can you describe your love for them and why they are essential? Gosh, in two or three minutes, probably not. Uh, <laughs> you're asking me a lot of easy questions. <laughs> yeah, sorry, I, I think there are, there are there are a lot of reasons why creeds are important. One of them is, I think that I find it very helpful to know that great men and women have gone before me and thought profoundly about divine truths so that I can effectively stand on their shoulders at this point, or Mm. I can benefit from the work they've done. I don't have to invent Christianity every Sunday by myself. I stand in a long tradition of people who've reflected long and hard on the Bible and God's existence and God's work among his people, and I can benefit from the fruits of their wisdom. Uh, We do that in terms of hymnody all the time, don't we? We sing great hymns of the faith because we like to draw on the beautiful hymns of the past. Well, we can also draw on the great theology of the past as well when we look at the great creeds and confessions. Secondly, I think related to that, in, in my church yesterday, we recited the Nicene Creed together, fourth century creed. It was wonderful, A, to give expression to uh, Trinitarian faith, but also wonderful to be using words that we know that Christians have used throughout the ages, and even yesterday, would have used across the face of the globe. Christians of all different races and nations and denominations using common language to express their common faith. I think there's something deeply beautiful and truly ecumenical about that. And then there are other reasons why one would have creeds and confessions. I I talk in the book I wrote about at length of of how creeds and confessions enable the congregations to hold their pastors to account. Uh, If I stand up and start denying that God is Trinity, my congregants can point to the confession of my church and say, but no, Pastor, you you promised to uphold this teaching and you're not doing it now. We can hold you to account for that. And then, of course, I think there's the fact a lot of Christians will say, you know, we don't have a creed or confession. We just have the Bible. Well, the answer to that is, of course, every Christian has a creed or confession. 
it's just a question of whether you write it down and allow other people to examine it. So I think, <laughs> ironically and perhaps counterintuitively, creeds and confessions allow for, for what I believe to be held up to biblical scrutiny uh, in a more powerful and pungent way by others than would be the case if I simply stood up and said, well, I, I just believe the Bible, but I'm, I'm not going to tell you what I believe about the Bible. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, they're rather inescapable, and they they do have this wonderful objectivity to them. And also, you know, if we're serious about accountability, then what better way than to write down what you believe and let others uh, have at it, as it were. Yeah, yeah, you should have no shame in writing down what you believe and, and learning from the scrutiny that others bring to it. Well, today we've had the honor of talking with Dr. Carl R. Truman. He is a pastor. And he serves as Professor of Biblical and Religious Studies at Grove City College in Grove City, Pennsylvania. Uh, Dr. Truman, if someone would like to read more, maybe uh, get one of your books, where could they go to do that? Uh, I always incline when people say, what should I read of yours, to say, don't waste time on me, read Jim Pack or something like that. (laughs) But if you're really determined to read something I'd written, I'd say my book on creeds, The Creedal Imperative, uh, would be the one to, to look at on that. And, and if you're interested in seeing how church history can be helpful to, to our Christian lives today, um, Luther on the Christian Life, both of them published by Crossway, I think they would give uh, you know, a helpful introduction to my work, my way of thinking. That's wonderful. Well, thank you very much. I know you're under tight time constraints and you fit us in. So, Dr. Truman, uh, Lord bless you, and thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me on. And dear listener, please join us next week for another edition of A Plain Answer.